Yeah. As Kevin mentioned, it's going on right now, our first microsite. If you're new to the church, we're a multi-site church. We have three campuses, one in Gilroy, one in Hollister, and an additional Spanish-speaking one in Gilroy called Centro Iglesia. And in addition to these three campuses, our goal is to do these microsites, which are mini church services that are brought to people in communities who may not normally be able to get to church. So think hospice, assisted living, um, working with the homeless, different various a- avenues like that where we could bring in a couple leaders who can take a couple acoustic guitars, do some worship, do announcements, do the small group thing. And uh, because you can go to Costco and get a, a thousand inch TV that weighs 22 pounds for 200 bucks, it's really easy where technology is at. You can just get a big giant screen, bring it in there, we record the sermon, and that's the only part that's delivered via video. And so this is our first one. We want to have several of these in Gilroy. We want to have some in Hollister. So um, keep that in prayer. Second, a quick announcement. Uh, We are officially launching our fourth campus, Centro Iglesia Hollister, July 16th. Um, Yeah. Massive massive opportunity there. 67% of Hollister is Hispanic, but the important number of that is that of that 67%, 14,000 people speak Spanish. Actually, just under 40% of the entire community of Hollister, their first language or their native tongue is Spanish. And so um, we want to be able to reach people who no English, so whatever ethnicity you are, as long as there's not a, a language barrier, you could do English, great. But if there's a, a language barrier and it's Spanish, we want to be able to do that. And if we were to have different groups of people coming in where there was a massive language barrier, we'd want to get the resources together to reach those people too. So this is a, a big endeavor. Be praying for that. Uh, be committed to it. So many good things going on here. It's been kind of cool that this series is about go, therefore, and we've been out sending people into our Uh, community to do that very thing. The title, Go Therefore, is taken from the conclusion of Matthew's gospel. It's kind of the theme verse for this series. It says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So evangelism, telling people about Jesus, talking about the gospel, is not an option if you're a Christian. It's a command. And it's a specific command given by a specific person, Jesus. And the specific command given by the specific person is given at a specific time, right after Jesus has resurrected in power and glory and has claimed all authority. That's when he says, you go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So we take it very very serious. It's obedience to our Lord. In this series, we've been looking at how Jesus, the master evangelist, spreads the good news. And what we've realized is that Jesus has the unchanging gospel message, but he allows that to contextualize or to flex or to meet people where they're at. So if there's a, there's a shame-filled woman at the well, he offers grace, forgiveness, and living waters. But if there's someone who's Uh, part of the religious elite and think they have their act together. He says, you must be born again to the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise to maybe a Pharisee. It's woe is to you, you whitewashed tomb. Sometimes you have to multiply the fish and the loaves and feed the masses. And sometimes you got to make a whip and drive out the money changers from the temple. And so Jesus doesn't fit into one specific mode of evangelism. Now, I've been a Christian for a while 
uh, depending upon the decade you became a Christian, there was you, there's like usually a specific evangelism strategy that has, has been taught to you. Um, and if you're new to Christianity, it's fine, you won't know this, but like there is a decade where it was like all about the evangelism strategy of the Romans road. Quick hands again. How many were taught the Romans road? Got it. How many of you were taught the spiritual laws? A little bit more. Uh, I asked this in first service, and it was kind of funny, and I'm not just doing it again because it's going to be kind of funny again. It actually is double proving my point. Sam, I forgot the name of the third one again. Where's Sam? There's the third one with the little, you say you minister to kids where there's like colors, and it's like, this is your life before Jesus. The world of this book, I cannot remember this. And this is what I joke around in first service. It's like I learned it wrong in my head, and so now forever, my brain, like, the, the pathways are set, like, like the neurological, there's no way, there's no way I could relearn it. And it hap- this happens, by the way, when you start having kids. Um, <laughs> like, if you learn something wrong, you can't remember it. Yeah, that's good. You can't remember it. So, like, say, say um, you know, there's this guy named John in your church, and you, you thought his name was Skippy or something like that, and you learned it wrong in your head for the first time, you know, then you see him next Sunday, he's like, hey, what's up, Skippy? Hey, Pastor, it's John again. You go, oh, okay, I'm sorry, God, I won't let that happen. But if he's sk- make no mistake, he's Skippy for the rest of his life. <laughs> it's like the, the kids, uh, the, the first kids you have, they, they mess with your brain, and so, you know, Skippy go to your church for a decade. He's John. You'd be doing four decades later, Skippy's funeral, and you're standing before friends and family. Skippy was a good man. <laughs> Come on, man, it's John. His name's John, not Skippy. So there's different modes of evangelism. But Jesus uh, doesn't fit into any category. He allows himself to have the gospel address the person's sin barriers and their specific issue. So if it's shame, the gospel has something to say. If it's guilt, the gospel has something to say. If it's pride, the gospel has something to say. And Jesus masterfully demonstrates that for us. Today, We're going to be dealing with one of the more famous passages in the Bible and probably, in my opinion, the most relevant to the majority of people in the room today. The story and the character involved is is famously known as the rich young ruler. Mark introduces the scene like this, and he was setting out on his journey. This is speaking of Jesus. Jesus was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Already, there's something revealed about this man, uh, a presupposition. The presupposition is this. He approaches Jesus and says, what must I do to have eternal life? In this man's mind, this young man believes that the ultimate requirement of religion is behavior, There's something he must do to inherit eternal life. Now, make no mistake about it. Behavior matters. Obedience to God's laws, his commands, they matter. They absolutely matter. But for this man, the ultimate end goal, the ultimate requirement of religion in order for salvation to occur is primarily behavioral. So it gives you a clue already into his mind. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Right off the bat, there's there's something that occurs that can disturb us. 
especially of those of you who are like me, who we like theological precision, want everything to fit nicely in our, in our theology to be all laid out. Um, Jesus is called good, and he immediately says, no one's good but God. And if you're like me, you're going like, wait a second, Jesus, I thought Jesus was God. So why is he like almost rebuking this guy for addressing him as good? Is Jesus, I thought Jesus was God. What's going on here? Raise your hand if as you've read that in the past, like that bothered you or you just consciously thought, okay. Oftentimes our desire for like theological precision or wanting to make sure we have things in order, it overrides our ability to examine what the text is trying to do. Jesus is a master evangelist. He knows what he's doing here. He's choosing his words carefully and wisely. No one is good but God. A first century Jewish man would absolutely agree with that. He wouldn't disagree with that. So the rich young ruler immediately would acknowledge Jesus is right. There is no one good but God. Then Jesus states some commandments. To the rich young ruler, you know the commands. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't defraud. Honor your mother and your father. <clears throat> if you know the Ten Commandments, think about the Ten Commandments and think about the, the, the commandments that Jesus quotes here. What stands out? What, what's unique? Is there something special going on? In the Ten Commandments, there's a way they're laid out. The, the first set of the commandments deal with what we'll call the vertical, our relationship with God. It's have no other gods before me. Do not make graven images. Honor the Sabbath. It's the Lord's day. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. The last set of the Ten Commandments deals with horizontal, how you deal with other human beings. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Don't lie. Honor your mother and your father. And Jesus quotes specifically stuff from the last half, the horizontal. Now try and see what's, what's going on and put the puzzle pieces together. Don't you know no one is good but God? If no one is good but God, then there has to be at least some type of allowance or exception for the idea that I am not good in the same sense that God is. I am somehow broken or flawed. If God is the only one who's truly good, then everybody, me, the rich young ruler, there's a flaw, there's a brokenness, there's something wrong. And then Jesus says, oh, obey the commands. But he doesn't, he doesn't bring out command number one, have no other gods before me. Jesus is working the conversation to get somewhere. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Whenever this, this passage is taught, there's often an interpretation of it that, that comes out of it, and it has to do with this. We look at this rich young ruler, and we see him saying, like, I've obeyed all the commands since my youth. And so we begin to picture like a prideful, arrogant, kind of like hypocritical person. And that's usually how this passage is taught, right? I mean, but, and that's fair. Think about it. If someone were to say, like, if you could look Jesus in the eye and be like, I've obeyed all the commands since I was a little kid, Jesus. 
Like your gut reaction is like, yeah, right. It's like, it's like looking at Jesus and being like, I never lie. <laughs> also, I'm not saying I'm the best, but I'm probably the most humble person you've encountered. <laughs> I'm really humble. I'm like really, really humble. Not a lot of pride in my life. And so you go, this guy's, this guy's arrogant. What's wrong with this guy? You know, how could you look Jesus in the eye and claim to, to have never broken the commands? Teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. So we get this picture. He's prideful. He's arrogant. What I'd like to do is kind of give an alternate understanding of this guy. Maybe he's prideful. Maybe he's arrogant. But I don't think that's the case. And there's several clues in the text that tell us that. First isn't in the text. It's a historical comment. When we look at the majority, if, and there's almost unanimous, universal acceptance and understanding on this from the rabbinical teachings of the time of Jesus and afterwards, roughly give or take a couple hundred years, most of the rabbis would teach that you actually could keep all of the law, that you could be blameless before the law. And there's 613 rules and commands in the law, but it's universally accepted that you could do the law. Now, we've had 2,000 years of Christian history and the letters of Paul the Apostle who make it clear, like, you know, you can't do the law. Everyone falls short. But in the first century realm and world, people believed you can keep the law. But what they meant by that was different than us. They didn't think they were perfect. They didn't think they never sinned. What they would say is, rich young ruler, I've, I've given my life to obeying the law. I always do my best to obey God. And when I mess up, when I lie or cheat and I'm consciously aware of it, there's a way to remedy that. You go to temple, you make the sacrifice, and you get reconciliation. And if there's reconciliation and forgiveness, that sin is no longer held against you. And so when people in the first century said things like, you know, I've done all of the law, they weren't saying it in the same sense that we might be saying it. Now, how do I know even more so? You don't even need to know about teachings of rabbis in the first century. Because the same person that taught us no one could keep the law perfectly, Paul the Apostle, claimed what? Before the law, I was blameless. And Paul was not claiming perfection. He's saying, I did my best to do it, and when there's a mistake, God has a remedy and a way to fix it. And so this rich young ruler, I don't think is like an arrogant, prideful person. I think he's a person who excels and exceeds at everything he does. He's a good, kind of good religious man, wants, wants to do everything he can. Um, and there's these people in life, you know, who, who are just like, like that. They excel and exceed at everything they do, but they're still like generally good people. You know, there's some people who get like in school straight A's and you don't like them because it's like they're, they're like, their teacher's pet and they're whiny and, and they're, they're doing everything they can. You just don't like them. But then there's those kids who get straight A's, but they're actually like really nice, kind, generous people. And you like really want to hate these people. Like there's probably about 5% of you in the room who occupy that spirit. And like the rest of the church, we really want to hate you because you're, you're good at everything you do. It's like you're good looking, you can sing, but you're like an engineer at the same. How can you be an artist and an engineer and you, just everything you do is great? And, you know, you're sitting at your lunch table just wanting to not like them, and then they see that you're alone, and they come to you, hey, my name's, so, my name's Skippy, and I just, you know, <laughs> I saw you sitting by yourself, and it's like, they're just, 
good, like general, if like, you know, we do Awanas here. If they were in Awanas, they get like Skippy of the Decade or Sparky of the Decade, whatever it's called. Sparky, Skippy, see, you don't learn new things. Um, this is a guy who I think has it all together and is doing his best. So Paul says, before the law, he was blameless in a similar manner to this guy. Now there's another clue in the text. Look how Jesus responds to him. Verse 21, and Jesus looking at him loved him. He loved him. This is the only place in the Gospel of Mark where someone, where Jesus says he loves somebody. Jesus loves him. Now contrast that with the way Jesus deals with people who he thinks are arrogant or prideful or hypocritical. When Jesus talks to like Pharisees, what is it like? You whitewashed tomb, son of a serpent, your flesh will be consumed in hellfire. No mercy will be shown to you on the day of my wrath. And it's like, dude, Jesus, oh my goodness. He doesn't mess around. Jesus does not mess around with pride, hypocrisy, and arrogance. He doesn't. But for this man, who's probably tried to be an obedient, straight-A student doing all of the law, his best of his ability, Jesus looks at him and loves him. He loves him. And then he tells him these words, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. You've done it all, son. You've got everything. But you're missing the most important thing. You have to come follow me. And your riches might keep you from doing that. For Jesus, obedience to the law and commands of God is it's not a substitute for relationship with Jesus. Again, obedience and the commands of God matter, but it's not a substitute for relationship with Jesus. And in this, there's a great exchange of a different type of substitute. Jesus will substitute himself for the man's riches. He will say, sell all you have, give it away, and I will substitute, I will be the substitute. And that's the great mystery of the Christian faith is that Jesus is actually worth more than gold, wealth, fame, riches. Take me instead, leave it behind. Which you can see how all the dots connect at this point. No one is good but God, which means something's wrong with you. Oh, you've done all these commands, but have you done the first? Have no other gods before me. What would be the test to know if you truly are not having any other gods before me? Take the thing you love most. Can you lay it down on the altar and give it to God? If not, if you hesitate, if you blink, that thing has become an idol more important to you than knowing God. And so there's this, this numbness going on. After this, um, they're going to get it on the slide, but I'll, I'll tell you what occurs. Um, the rich young ruler, how does he respond? He goes away with sadness. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He couldn't do it. Now, again, that's not the response of someone who's prideful and arrogant. The, the prideful person, I, I went to Jesus, I called him good, he publicly rebukes, rebukes me and humiliates me. And then he says, oh, if I'm truly going to be really righteous, I have to sell all that I have. My blessings are a gift from God. I've earned them. No, no, no. This young man knew it. He knew he was choosing riches over the right thing, and he goes away with sorrow. Have you ever had a sin in your life that you knew 
was wrong, but you loved it so much and it had such a grip on your life you were unable to give it up? Have you been there? You knew better. You even talked to God about it. God, I love you. Forgive me of my sins. Forgive me of my sins. And then in the moment where he says, give that to me, you hold on to it. And have you ended in sorrow? Because you know you knew better, but you clung to that idol. The rich young ruler goes away sorrowful, and Jesus is sad as well. He loved this man. His riches were breaking commandment number one, keeping him from God. It goes on, and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, quick clue on something. Jesus says, it's difficult for rich people to get to heaven. The disciples are shocked, and then he says it again, but listen to 20, verse 24. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children. He addresses them as children. We'll come back to that later. It's important. But then verse 25, one of the famous verses in scriptures. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Oftentimes, when Jesus speaks very harsh words that are meant to, they're meant to jab us, they're meant to sting, we do our best to interpret our way out of the sting. So Jesus says something harsh to us. If you are rich, to get to heaven, it will be like a camel going through an eye of a needle. And you go, well, that sounds impossible. So Jesus can't possibly mean that. So we do our best to remove the sting in Jesus' words. I'll give you a couple examples how this has happened with this text. One, uh, many hundreds of years after the Bible was, was completed, there were some scribes who thought, man, this possibly can't, can't mean that. And so they, they, they made a scribal decision in copying the text as they're, they're writing it, and they changed the word from camel to Greek word kamelos to a different Greek word kamelos. So just from like an A sound to an I sound. Kamelos to kamelios. Uh, kamelos means camel, kamelos means rope. So it's like, Jesus possibly couldn't mean camel, because that's impossible. So it's probably, he probably didn't say camelos, said camelos, it's a rope. And so you, you see, it's, it's like one kind of makes it seem impossible, and the other one, it's kind of like, it's less. But even with that, think about it. I can't even get the normal string through the eye of the needle. <laughs> a rope, it's still pretty much impossible. Still pretty much impossible. And there's another one. And uh, so far, at every service, about 20% of the people have heard, had heard this and uh, taught. Um, and so, sometimes you might hear people say, oh, Jesus is actually doing a historical reference here. See, in, in Israel, in Jerusalem, in many places in the ancient world that people were familiar with, there was a hole in the wall at the city gates. And so there is, they called the hole at the wall in the city gates the eye of the needle. And so when the camels would come through, in order to enter into the city, they would have to bow down to enter in through the hole, the eye of the needle. And it's go, the saying is like this. Jesus isn't saying it's impossible for rich people to go to heaven. He's saying that for rich people, they have to be like the camel and bow themselves before the king as they enter. Now, raise your hand if you've heard that. Well, it's not true. It's not true at all, at all. Um, where that came about was 
in the ninth century, roughly a thousand years after Jesus spoke these words, um, archaeologists began to discover in locations nowhere near Israel that there was indeed these holes in city walls and and in gates for the animals to, to go through to enter into the city. But the problem is the first recorded instances of those are miles away from Israel and a thousand years after Jesus. There's nothing like that in the first century Israel. So the idea was to try to say, you just, if you're rich, don't worry, you just have to bow and be respectful. So what, is, what does the Greek word for camel really mean? Camel. <laughs> so the Greek word for eye of a needle mean? Eye of a needle. What is Jesus saying? He's taking the largest animal that your average Jewish person would know in that day, a scene. There's a Babylonian saying that's similar to this, but it uses an elephant. They're more familiar with elephant, but they say camel. So he thinks of the largest animal that people would be familiar with and then thinks of the smallest entryway and says, oh, you know what it's like for a rich person to go to heaven? It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. Now, how do we know that the response should be like, well, that's impossible. Rich people can't go to heaven then. How do we know that's what Jesus wants to communicate? Look at the next section. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? Nobody could be saved. Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So I'm telling you, it is impossible for a rich man to be saved. It is impossible, but with God all things are possible. See what, I'm, see what Jesus is doing? And see how that disarms you? Oh, you, wanna, you, wanna, you think you could bring something to God. You think you could do some work. You think you got enough money in your bank account. No, no, no. It's actually impossible for you to enter heaven, but not with God. So if you're a rich person, your temptation will always be to trust in your riches more than Jesus. And you actually have no hope except God shows up powerfully in your life to save you and show you his mercy and grace. Now, there's another way we remove the stinger from this. Um, It's where we go. Now, this is one of those extreme examples in Scripture where Jesus used extreme words in extreme situation. This command to to not sell all you have, this command to sell all you have and give to the poor, only doesn't apply to all of us. It only applies to those who um, are rich and who trust in their riches. And in that, I would say, you're proving too much. You're right. This, this passage only applies to those who are rich and for people who trust in their riches. Are you rich? If you've been at this church a long time, you know where I'm going. You're rich. There's probably some people in here are suffering economically seriously, and, and we want to, you know, we do our best to, to help and, and do all that stuff. But most of the time, even when we're struggling, our struggles are not like the rest, the rest of the world. I mean, every single person in this community has access to clean drinking water. I mean, think about that. That is a miracle. I mean, there's, there's pipes that go underground and come up to our houses and we flip a button on and clean water comes out. There's millions of children that don't have access to clean water. So yeah, there's some, some of us that are really struggling, but if, if you rent an apartment and certainly if you own a home and have a car, you're like in the top percentile of wealthiest people in the world. So you say, this only applies to rich people who trust in the riches. We go, hmm, 
Okay, well, I'm rich. But I don't trust in my riches. That's where you have to ask the question, do you? Do you? And if so, do you trust in your riches more than you trust in Jesus? Commandment number one, have no other gods before me. If you love your wealth, money, and comfort more than Jesus, the only way for me to be faithful to this passage is to tell you, sell all you have, give to the poor. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Better to enter into heaven with one eye than to be thrown into hellfire. It's not worth it. Now, when you ask yourself those questions, I know some of us are like, I can't sell my, there's people who are dependent upon me, I have kids, or I'm taking care of a, 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 a spouse or, or my parents. I get it. I'm not talking about like if you're dependent and you leave, someone's going to be, but I'm saying just really the hard question. If you were put before Jesus like the rich young ruler and you were bowed before him, you've called him good teacher, and he looks at you and says, you've done well, but you lack one thing. Sell all you have and give it to the poor. Would you blink? Would you hesitate? Would you rationalize? Or would you run to Jesus and say, I'll follow you at all cost? If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your money keeps you from Jesus, give it all away. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Jesus is more precious than gold or silver. With man, it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible. And make, make it clear that the Bible, oftentimes at sermons like this, people can start like not liking rich people or wealthy people, which is funny because, again, we're pretty much all, most of us in this room are wealthy, wealthy compared, compared to the world. Um, but the Bible doesn't, Joseph of Arimathea in the Gospels is a rich man. The Bible doesn't condemn him. Why? Because he's a rich man that blesses people with what he's been blessed with. Money is not his idol. And so you can use your wealth and your riches for good, but you've got to be honest with yourself. You have to be. Is, is that really the case? Or, or are you allowing them to grip you? And oftentimes people feel bad at these sermons, like, oh my gosh, there's so many people who have so many other things in the world. Don't ever feel guilty for having more things than other people in the world. That leads nowhere. You feel really bad and go, there's people who don't have water in the world and I have access to clean drinking water. Feeling guilty does nothing. It just makes you think you're a compassionate person, but you'll forget about it tomorrow and then you'll forget about it the next time you hear the stat. You kind of, it's like an internal virtue signaling to remind yourself that you're not bad. Don't feel guilty. Become a person who always gives thanks. God, thank, thank you. Thank you. Humanity has made a tremendous progress in order to make clean drinking water available to everyone in the room. You give thanks. God, thank you. Thank you. Help me to be a, help me to be a blessing. But you got to have all those hard questions with yourself. Now, this, this is awesome. Right before Jesus tells the rich young ruler, you lack one thing, there's a section right before it, verses right before, that deals with children. When they were bringing their children to him, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. To the children who run to Jesus with nothing, to them belongs the kingdom of God. To the rich young ruler who asks, What must I do? and clings to his riches, you lack one thing. What happens after? Jesus tells the disciples 
one thing twice. First as disciples, the second as children. You see what he's doing? Your posture before Jesus has to be like children. I got nothing to offer. I'm a beggar, but I'm running to you. I'm leaving it all behind. And the image of children is powerful because if you're a parent or a grandparent, you have little kids in your life that you love, you know this intuitively, right? Like when, when I come home from work, 75 to 85% of the time, my kids run to me. Run to, oh, dad, daddy's home, thank you. And, and, and they run and hug. They don't have anything in their hands. They've got nothing. They have nothing to give except themselves. And, they, they, and guess what? I want nothing from them except them. And I want all of them. And I want the embrace and the hug. And I say, I love you. I thank the Lord for you. Thank you. And so you get that intuitively. There's a posture that children have to their parents that Jesus is saying you need to have to me. That says 70, you know, 75, 85% of the time. Sometimes the kids don't do that. My, kid, my son really likes music. He's two, so he'll just be fake playing instruments. My daughter likes, sometimes she wants to, to battle me when I come home. That's her word. Uh, she likes to fight. Like, it, I mean, like sometimes I come home, she has little weights. It's a true story. She has little weights. And she's been lifting weights. She's, Dad, I've been training all day to take you out. And she's just, she's ready. She'll come in and come and give me a drop kick. But the point is still the same. They run to you. They run to you. So what's the man's barrier and how does this work? The man has everything in life. And he's comforted by his riches. But he's comforted by his riches so much that he's become numb to his ultimate needs. And this, this is the thing. You can be comforted by wealth, riches so much that you're not even thinking about ultimate needs. And this is the curse of people, not just in our country, but in our state and in our particular area. People in the, the greater Silicon Valley area, we have so many things and are so busy, we don't ever stop to think about the most important questions. You're numb to the greatest needs in life. You can be highly successful, have everything you want, and never stop and ask, am I spending enough time with my kids? I run into people all the time and you ask them a question like, what do you think about God? And they go, I don't know, I never think about it. Whether there is a God or not, the most important question you can ask yourself is, is there a God and what is he like? Who is he? What is it? Because that will change every aspect of your life. But you have people who don't even, they don't even, their brain doesn't even think about it. They are so numb to the ultimate needs of life because of excess comfort, they're not even wrestling with these things. I'm gonna show you a couple things, and it's okay, it's, it's, I mean, it's very serious, but at the same time, it's funny, so it's okay to laugh. But we, we're like fish in, in water, we're not even aware of our surrounding. We are comforted beyond all imagination. We have wash machines and dryers and dishwashers. If it's too cold, we have heaters. I mean, some of you think you've been cold. We've never been cold. I know, like, everyone in here, it's like, we're Californians, so it gets winter, it's 55 degrees, and you're saying things like, it's freezing, my, it's, it's so bad, it's freezing, turn the heater up. It's not, we, probably only a few of us have ever experienced what being cold is actually like. Hurts your bones, it's hard to breathe. People who are shivering, trying to survive because it's so cold. If it gets too hot, we have an air conditioner. To ex- prove this in an extreme way, it's okay to laugh. And, and some, some of you have these. I'm not knocking it. You just be thankful, be grateful. But we have toilet seats with four heat settings. There's a cool down. A cool down. Just in case things, you know, 
too hot. We relieve ourselves, we go to the bathroom in cleaner drinking water than millions of children actually get to drink. We're wealthy, we're rich, our comfort level is unbelievable. We're lazy. This is, this is for, I mean, we, in America we have pets, we have dogs, and we could afford to feed our dogs. And just in case we don't wanna actually play with our dogs, this thing, you put a bunch of tennis balls in it and it's timed intervals and throws little skippy, the balls out and then the dog puts them back in the bucket and he plays catch with himself because you don't want to. There's a Roomba, but it's a Darth Vader Roomba. This was Amazon deal of the day two days ago and when I saw this, the first thing I told myself was, dude, that's awesome. It talks like Darth Vader and vacuums. Pay a $100 premium because it's Star Wars. Like, I don't need that. I don't. So we become numb to our greatest needs. You become numb. So the, the question is this. If you were before Jesus and he told you, sell everything you have and come follow me, could you do it? I know there's a lot of factors. There's kids, there's dependents. I just block all that out. Just put your comfort, your success, your wealth, all of it. Do you hesitate before your king? Do you blink? Do you rationalize? And if that's you, if we're being faithful to the text, is it's chop off your hand, gouge out your eyes, sell all you have, give to the poor. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. If you could say, I could do that, but honestly, you know, I still trust in my riches. I trust in Jesus the most, but, you know, I still struggle. Because if you, if you live in this culture, riches and, and wealth, comfort, it's going to be a temptation. It's going to be a temptation. It may not be your primary God, but it's a big temptation. So what do you do if you're in that boat? Three quick things, three, three easy things, but very difficult to do. Give thanks, give money, and give praise. Uh, give thanks. Remember what I said. Don't feel guilty that you have access to clean drinking water. Thank the Lord for that and become a person that gives thanks regularly and continually. It will change your posture to the world, changes the way your mind works. Thank God for the breath and you wake up, make a habit of, as soon as you wake up, thank, thank you, Lord. Write the people down, the things you have, the air in your lungs. Thank you. Become a person of thankfulness. The will of God in Christ is for you to be thankful. Number two, give money. Become a generous person. Even the cartoons get this right. If there's a cartoon and there is a greedy rich person, how happy are they? They're not happy. Greedy, selfish people eat your soul alive. Become a generous person because it's good for your soul. If you're not partnered with us in giving for the mission, a part of this church, that's a great way. Start giving to the church. Get in line with that. It's good for your soul. But I'm not just talking about giving to the church. Become a generous person. It will change the way you live. Three, give praise. In worship, when you declare Jesus as your treasure, it reorients the world around you and, and you begin to see what is truly valuable. Lastly, when you're ministering to people who are numb, you have to understand you are ministering to the hardest person to reach. There are some people who 
they come up to you and say, what must I do to be saved? And you say, believe in Jesus. And then they go get baptized. Story of the Philippian jailer. That happens. Or the story of the paralytic. What was his barrier? Someone just needed to get him to Jesus. Those ones are easy. But someone who's numb, does it, they're not aware of their needs. And that's the culture we live in. No one's even thinking about it. So what do you do? Three quick things. And I know the first, two, the first one kind of sounds like the Christian answer for everything, but I, it often is. Prayer, but with fasting. Jesus says there are some things that are only accomplished by prayer and fasting. By, by multiple people going on behalf of someone else. Lord, work on this person's heart. Prayer and fasting. Lord, work on their heart. Change them from the inside out. Two, and simultaneous to that, be as truth-telling and loving as you possibly can. So let's say there's someone who is, is climbing the corporate ladder of success that's your friend, but you see them, they're not, being a, they're not being a good husband and they're not caring about their kids. You go to that person the most loving way you, you can, but you tell them, dude, I love you, but you are, you are going to regret your life decades from now when you are on your deathbed. You are going to regret your life. You're going to look back and you say you didn't care about your family. You didn't care about your kids. And all your wealth and your accomplishments, your titles, your raises, they're going to matter nothing. You're wasting your life. You're not thinking about ultimate things, God, reality, morality, purpose. You will go to your deathbed and you will stay there and you will regret your life now and you will regret it for eternity change your ways now jesus can forgive you you need to repent and you do that forcefully and strong and nine times out of ten they're going to think you're crazy anyway this is the hardest person to reach we got to follow jesus in this he doesn't say oh you know all in good time you know i've been praying for you and and you know no today is the day repent you don't have tomorrow Lord doesn't promise you anything. And again, nine times out of 10, they're gonna think you're crazy anyway. But you do it anyway, you be faithful. The command go therefore by Jesus. Every part of this series, we've been having someone um, share and we're gonna do that in a moment. But be before I do, just, just a serious challenge. Are you trusting in riches? Is it your, is it your God? If so, you, you've gotta repent massively. Because I'm telling you, God loves you enough too that sometimes if you're unable to repent, he'll take your riches from you. And I know tons of people have had that happen. Strips them right out of your hand saying mine. And maybe you're, it's not your chief God, but it's, it's something that you struggle with. That's, it's probably one of my top, top three struggles in life is I'm a materialist. I like things. I like new things. I want Darth Vader. Um, become a person that's thankful gives praise, and is generous. Greg going to come on up um, and transition us. Oh, no, Kevin's going to come on up. We're going to transition into a testimony, and then we'll be, we'll be wrapping up. So uh, one of the brothers that we have here, um, you've seen him before. He and uh, his wife actually lead our, our Cuba mission, and... Uh, he has a very interesting life. He's a good brother. He's fed me good food in Cuba. I'm hoping he's going to feed me good food in Gilroy. Anyway, let's invite Oscar Serenia up. Why don't you guys give him a good hand?
So my testimony, I've just had to call it something, right? And I called it a journey of twists and turns. Some of it is happy moments, and some of it is sad moments. As Kevin just said, you know, we uh, were the Cuban brothers and sisters, <laughs> but a lot of you know that I, I was born in Cuba, and I came to the U.S. when I was five years old. I did not speak English, and the only thing I learned quickly in Sunday school, preschool, was punching cookies. I was brought up in a Christian home, along with my brother. My dad and mom were faithful believers until they passed. My mom was a prayer warrior who fought cancer for over 26 years, and she never complained. At the age of nine, I received Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. What that meant was to follow his teachings, to follow him. My Sunday school teachers were a tremendous influence throughout my teenage years. One in particular was Mr. Kelly, who taught me what it was to walk my life with Jesus, not to mention my parents who were always there for me. At the age of 15, I attended a missions conference, and God stirred in me a desire to serve him. There was no doubt he called me. I felt missions would be a great place to start, and in my heart, I wanted to go to Cuba as a missionary once I finished school. Well, of course, I knew that would never be possible, especially with Castro in power. So I went on to college, and I studied religious education, prepared myself for ministry and music, and started my journey serving as a youth minister at a small church in San Diego. Yes, every Friday after class, we got in our car, my roommate and I, who he was the pastor, and I was to music and youth and everything else. And uh, that church had only ladies as members. Can you imagine what that was like? Husbands would not come because church was a waste of time. They were happy drinking with their friends on Saturday night. And unfortunately, some of them even came home and beat, them, beat their wives up after they had their drinking binge. By the time I finished college, we had five men that joined their wives and had decided to follow Jesus and serve him in that little mission. In my last year of college, I got married. We had two awesome kids, and I continued to serve him as a bivocational minister because what I wanted to be full-time in church work God had other plans. So for a little bit over 20 years, I served him working as a youth pastor, education minister, music minister. I even did some pastoring, even though I knew God hadn't called me to pastor, as well as led music in a crusade in Los Angeles. Yes, just a little bit of church life. Things are going well. We felt we had everything good job, a house, great kids, and an unexpected twist happens. My wife of 25 years decides to leave me for someone else. My world stopped, and all I could do was ask now, what, God? What do you want me to do? I am serving you why this. Divorce was not a word used in our home growing up or otherwise, but it happened. Yes, it was hurtful and also affected everything around me. But God had other plans. 
greater plans that I did not see at the moment. I wanted a Christian woman, a woman who supported me in what God had called me to do, which was to serve him and do his will. So Rachel comes into my life. And she too had gone through a divorce. So now we're together, happy, great family, good jobs, and we are able to purchase a one-plus-million-dollar home here in Gilroy. In 2006, we moved here to Gilroy, and we found this church, which we call home South Valley Community Church. We joined a small group. That's the only way you can get plugged in, join a small group. And not soon after, I become a small group leader. So again, happy. Jobs are going well. Have a home that we dedicated to God's work. Our kids are doing well. We have a pool. Well, you know what it's like when you have a pool. Everybody comes over, right? So you entertain and you spend a lot of money every single weekend. And we did that with family and friends almost every summer. But in 2009, the economic downturn. Rachel is laid off her off her job as the company files for bankruptcy, and now we start trying to survive and keep our home. Everything we turned to, nothing worked. We knew God was there, but did not know what good could come from a difficult financial situation. For you see, we were happy with our house, all nice things, our BMW, etc. But we did not realize that was our idol. We were numb, like Isaac mentioned. I had to add that because that's true. We were numb. That was tearing us into us and affecting our whole lives. So after seeing all our possible solutions fail, we said, and we lifted our hands up and we said, we give up, God. You take this house, everything else, and we turn it to you. So now we know we are losing our house. Not sure where we're going. No job in sight for Rachel, and we lose half of our income. No home, no car, no discretionary income. And in the middle of all this turmoil, Cuba comes into the horizon. We get a call from my sister-in-law who finds out we have plans to go to Cuba. Now, we had mentioned we were going to Cuba, but she said, you're going to Cuba? And you're thinking, what, Cuba? You've lost your house. You've lost your car, Cuba. Okay, I'll tell you what. This is where God's plan comes in. She tells us of a small little church that is in need of help, and she encourages us to visit that little church in Buena Vista. So we go, and we visit five churches, including Remedios and Pastor Alexis in 2010. Well, I know what you're thinking. I am in Cuba after 40 years of the calling of wanting to go to Cuba, but still for me it was hard to think I am going to Cuba, a communist regime, a country my parents took me out of, but there I am, and now what? What does God want me and Rachel to do? We were there to check things out and not knowing what was going to transpire. This little church in Buena Vista touched our hearts. We wanted to help, but we had no clue how to do it. After we returned, I get a call. You probably can guess who it was, Pastor Eric. Pastor Eric first asked me, how are you doing? 
because he knew I was anxious. He knew I was going back after 50 years of not of leaving that country. And he just talked to me a little bit, and then comes the answer, uh, the question. And he goes, can we do ministry in Cuba? I assured him, of course, Eric, we can. Again, not knowing what in the world was going to happen. A few months later, Pastor Alexis calls, and he says, I'm coming to the States. We didn't think anything of it, and we said, you just come on down to Gilroy. And uh, we had no way to finance this trip, but God did. So in 2011, we make our first youth camp trip, and of course, that is where my heart is is teaching and challenging the young people in Cuba to continue to follow Jesus and to walk in his paths. Well, I hope you see that God is always with you. No matter what your journey is in your life, he is there. But you have to be willing to listen to God's call and to go where he leads you. In the midst of material losses, God blessed us to go to our country of origin to share the gospel there. The joy of doing that surpasses all of our material losses. We have been blessed by this opportunity, but we also have a desire to share how God can transform lives. It's amazing how God uses people like us to make his kingdom a reality. Let me share a couple of verses for you. One that Isaac uh, has mentioned, but this one touched my heart as I was preparing. And that is Joshua 1.5, where Moses had passed. Joshua comes and the Lord talks to Joshua and tells him this. I will be with you. I won't give up on you. I won't leave you. And then as we look at the go part, that is so profound. And it's a command that God gives us. Let us go out and train everyone you meet far and near in this way of life. And at the end, he says, I will be with you as you do this day after day after day, right up to the end of the age. I hope you go. I hope you tell your story because that is your story that people can respond to. May God bless you. All right, we're just about to leave for the day, and I just, want to, I just want you to take one last moment to think about this numbness thing. I think we all have a level of this in our lives, and you know people in your life have the same thing. So I'm just going to say this. May you go out into the city and love on it as Jesus has loved you. May you be an antidote, take the gospel with you to be that antidote against that numbness. His presence is with you. We take it with us. This is not the end of your faith journey at what, 12.30 on a Sunday, you go out these doors bringing that good news to other people. So please do that. Let us do that together. All right? God be with you. God bless you. Amen.